Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good afternoon and welcome to Hay and to this event which is part of the Cambridge University series. David Spiegelhalter is the Professor of Public Understanding of Risk uh, at uh, the Statistical Laboratory at University of Cambridge. He's also a Fellow of Churchill College at Cambridge also. Uh, his research interests include understanding of risk, but also Bayesian methods, biostatistics and performance assessment. His latest book, Sex by Numbers, What Statistics Can Tell Us About Sexual Behaviour, um, he will be talking about today, and he'll be signing copies in the book tent afterwards. Please do give a warm hey welcome to David Spiegelhalter. Okay. Thanks very much to, you know, for coming along to hear a Cambridge maths professor talking about statistics. And um, you could have gone to Gordon Brown. Anyway, I don't know. But you chose not to, which is a, a sign, I think, in your favour. Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about this book, um, which I did. It was a, sort of commissioned by the Wellcome Collection, who had an Institute of Sexology um, exhibition for a year that ran uh, up to last September, which was excellent. I don't know if people went. Did anyone go? Anyone go? Yeah, great. Cool. Anyway, it was good, wasn't it? The problem is it didn't have any stats in it. Yeah, there's no numbers. You know, I'm a statistician, I want to see numbers. So today you're going to get numbers, I'm afraid. Um, and I hope you're not expecting any sort of titillation or anything remotely sexual at all, because you're not going to get it. Uh, no, you're going to be disappointed. So that's the book. That's the, it took a long time to write. It took a long time to choose the cover. Um, that was going to be the cover. <laughs> no, not bad, not bad. Come on, you're quite, quite quick, quite quick. It's my, my test of an audience's alertness, whether they spot the first dirty statistics graphical joke. Um, anyway, no, that was the cover that the designer came up with, and uh, Welcome said, no, 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 can't have that, possibly. No, 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 no one's going to read that on the tube. But I don't know if they read, it. Don't know if they read that on the, on, the, on the tube anyway. So I thought that was rather good. So um, I'm, a, I'm a statistician, and one of the first questions, you know, when you think about, you've got to define your terms. So what is sex? And it actually becomes quite important. It was particularly important 20 years ago <laughs> to, and many of you remember this, President, this became a matter of constitutional importance with President Clinton and Monica, Monica Lewinsky, who were great friends then. Anyway, um, they became more than friends. And many of you remember that, I, I mean, to put it bluntly, um, she performed oral sex on him in the Blue Room. Of the, of the White House, in the Oval Room of the, of the White House. And, um, but he claimed then, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. Now, he was a lawyer, and he had a fine technical point, because what he claimed is, she had sexual relations with me, but I didn't have sexual relations with her. So sex is an asymmetric condition, then, he was saying. So this became, a, he was impeached for lying, and this became a matter of constitutional importance. And um, rather mischievously, a, uh, at that time, the Journal of the American Medical Association published a survey of 1,000 students or 800 students about what they thought of as having sex. And um, so this is the blue line. This is the proportion you think this level of intimacy counts as having sex. Okay, so um, I won't read them all out. Um, you can get, you can get, can you read that at the back? Most of the print is a lot bigger. I'm sorry if the print's a bit small. But anyway, this is sort of slobbering around. And uh, <laughs> this is, 
but notice the down here is oral sex either way on someone else or with yourself with some was there an age limit on this audience I just really I, <laughs> I sort of plunged straight into this stuff immediately without thinking anyway it's your fault if you've um, if you're if you're shocked by this but but notice that's less than half less than half thought that oral sex was having sex now um, People tend to think that penile vaginal intercourse is having sex, except a few men clearly didn't. <laughs> and and you, 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 what are they waiting for before, before they've gone all the way, got to number 10? You know, maybe they're waiting for number 11, you know, like, like spinal tap. Anyway, so, so the point is that, um, you know, this became a, a matter of issue, and the a minority, but less than half people, thought that oral sex was having sex. And when it came to the impeachment trial by the US Senate, they voted in exactly the same way. 45 out of 110 said he was guilty, in other words, oral sex was sex, he did have sexual relations, and the majority said he, wa he wasn't. So um, he got away with it. The person who didn't get away with it was the editor of the Journal Ameri of the American Medical Association who got sacked for publishing this paper in the middle of this. Um, this, this, yeah, I know, he lost his job because of this, because of this business. Um, anyway, what, what I would like to say, though, is now officially oral sex is sex from now on because that is included in the official definition of a sexual partner. And we'll come on to what that, what that means later. Now, I'm a statistician, and um, one of the things I realized when I was starting writing this book is that most of the stuff about sex, the stats, are drivel. If you Google sex, don't do it. You know, I, 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 <laughs> I'm going, to, I'm going to make lots of rhetorical suggestions. Don't do it. If you Google sex statistics, you'll find, a, oh, 10 ways you can do this and 10 numbers that will shock you. All this rubbish on the, on the web. So that sex statistics range in their quality. And one of the things I do in the book is really try to separate out the good from the bad. And I start off by saying, you know, the best are four-star statistics. Ones you can actually believe. You know, you can all intents and purposes believe the numbers. Now, these are quite rare, but they do exist. Good official statistics. For example, um, you may say this is more sort of social habits than sex, but 48% of births in 2012 were formerly illegitimate. So now half of babies in this country are now born outside wedlock. So the whole idea of illegitimacy is no longer interesting. Um, in 1973, one in 20 16-year-old girls got pregnant. It's now halved, which is a, a, gr a great achievement. And just over the last 12 years, the teenage pregnancy rate has halved in this country. But that was going on. But, and for every 20 girls born, 21 boys are born. You might think that's not to do with sexual behavior, but I will argue later that it is. And this is an interesting one. You know, Philip Larkin thought that sex intercourse was invented in 1963. It clearly wasn't, and premarital sex certainly wasn't either. In 1938, at least half of brides under 20 were pregnant when they got married. One in six of all brides were pregnant when they got married. This is known as prenuptial pregnancy, and of course you can find this out with official statistics by correlating, by putting together dates of marriage with dates of birth, and you look at the gap between them. And that's what reveals these fascinating numbers. Of course, that, mean, that statistic means nothing now. ONS, Office of National Statistics, used to report prenuptial pr pregnancy rates. They don't bother anymore because, they say, half people are, uh, are not married anyway. So who cares? Um, now, what about this, the seven-year itch? How good is this number? Is that, a, you know, is that a, a four-star statistic? It's a four-star statistic, the seven-year itch. If you go onto the Office of National Statistics websites, they provide this data. 
This is what can be called the hazard curve, it's the risk curve for length of marriage. This is, of marriages that have lasted this long, what percentage end in divorce in that year? So of, this would be of marriages that lasted 15 years, about 1.5% of marriages will then end in their 16th year. They'll fail. So it's an interesting curve, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? Look, it starts at zero. Then you've got, you got a few celebrities down here, maybe, <laughs> who, who just last a few months and, oh, it was a mistake. And, uh, you know, and they, they've already been on the cover of Hello, but, they, but then they've, um, they've got to give their, they won't give their money back. And look at the peak at seven years. Seven years is the peak risk time for divorce you know, after marriage. And then it declines. And there's no, people have suggested, well, isn't there another peak, a sort of empty nest or something like that? And no, there isn't. It just steadily declines as we get used to each other and sort of, you know, get used to each other's ways or whatever. And, um, and, uh, and it carries on like that. But seven years is the peak. Now, of course, in fact, now people live on average together for three or four years now before they do get married. So the actual time of relationship has shifted back. But there again, the time of getting fed up with each other is probably shifted back from the period of time of divorce as well. So I think that's a, a, it's a good statistic, the seven-year age. Okay, what about slightly less data? Three stars. They're the ones you can sort of believe. You know, roughly, up to about 20. Yeah, yeah, sort of good enough. And good surveys. Now, are there good... How do you do a good sex survey? Well, um, the NATSAL is the name of the big sex survey done in this country. Has anyone been, I don't know if anyone's been a, anyone participated, has been a member? Were you? <laughs> were you, what were you thinking? So? <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> right, okay, yes, yeah, good. Were you part of it? Wow, well, how, how did you find, sorry, do you mind me asking? Ah, oh, right, okay. Well, it is a very detailed survey that goes into all sorts of stuff. But they've got, um, you know, 15,000 people, cost £7 million to do, done it in the last version, done every 10 years. It was done in, the first one was done in 1990 at the sort of AIDS fear peak. And it was the one, where, I don't know if you remember this, Margaret Thatcher banned it at the last minute, took the funding away at the very last minute. And said, oh, no, we're not going to have any of that stuff. And, um, and then, uh, actually, the welcome... Foundation um, stepped in and paid for it. Two-thirds response rate, which doesn't sound great, but it's better than most surveys. Computer-assisted self-interview. So now, you know, the interviewer goes into your home, you get 30 quid for participating, and, um, and they tell you that this is very valuable, very useful for health, planning health services and everything, and then you open up the computer and you answer the questions onto the computer. So you don't have to, um, you don't say your answers, um, she will explain anything, or she, they will explain anything if they need to, but um, they, nobody sees your answers, and it's closed down, and that's how it's done. And that's how you ask questions like, how many times have you had sex in the last four weeks? So, this is, so couples, this is, some intro, this is the data, this is the one observation from this data. Because it's been done for over 20 years, you start getting this, you know, looking, being able to see the changes in society. This is the one bit that gets the newspapers really picked on all the time. People are having less sex. So this is sexually active couples between 16 and 44, opposite sex couples, and the median um, was to have sex uh, was five times in the last month, in 1990, then four times, then three times. So, you know, I'm a mathematician, so I know that at this rate, by 2030, nobody's going to be having any sex at all. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is a very worrying trend. 
<laughs> so obviously a, a big range, Those are, that's the bottom 25%, the top 75%. So you can roughly place yourself on that graph if you wish. So, um, and, and, and everyone say, why, why, why? And you know, of course, statisticians say, I don't know. It's not my job to say why. So you say, this is what happens. And uh, at, when, during while the researchers were being interviewed about this, one of them said, mention the word iPad. And that's all the coverage was about people with their iPads in bed. I think it's the box set myself. It's the uh, <laughs> net Netflix. Oh my God, I've got to watch the entire second season of Game of Thrones or something like that. So the point is that, and it is generally thought now that this massive connectivity that we all have, the constant checking of our phones, there are the uh, entertainment going on at any time you want compared with just a few years ago when essentially you know, the TV closed down at half past 10 or whatever and there's nothing else to do. So, um, uh, and even power cuts, which helps. And so, <laughs> so now, um, you know, the, the, the people are having less sex and it is, it is true. Now, the other thing is that it depends on how old you are. Um, this is, you know, by age group, uh, the thick line is the median number of times people having sex for sexually active couples for women and men, which roughly matches, and uh, which is lucky. And um, <laughs> so it, but it declines with age. So strong decline in sexual activity with age. And that's due to age, <laughs> um, it's due to illness. Um, it's also due to length of relationships. Um, the frequency of people having sex halves after two years in a relationship, essentially. So for whatever reasons, that it's not my job to go into. So, anyway, so you can put yourself on this graph. Don't tell me. So that's right. I don't want to know. Now, now we come into something, one of the great mathematical mysteries of all time is how many sexual partners do people report? Now, I've noticed I haven't said how many sexual partners do people have. I've said how many sexual partners do people report? Now, I've picked an age group 35 to 44, which may represent some people in the audience. This and... There's a, there is, of course, what's called a strong cohort effect. This depends not so much on your age, perhaps, as when you were born, how many sexual partners you've had, because habits have changed so much. So this is the reported number of lifetime opposite-sex partners. And I think this picture, you know, you could just write a whole essay just on this, pic on this graph. Of thousands, there's 2,000 people here. Um, the most common um, response is one, which is very sweet. And then two, three, four, five, six. And you can imagine along here, people are actually sort of remembering in, you know, in detail. Around about here, <laughs> it all starts getting a bit vague. You know, sort of, you know, uh, clearly memories, faces are blurring into each other. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And by here, it's getting spectacularly vague. <laughs> people are saying, oh, 30, 40, 50. Now, I do say, I, I have cut the graph off here. Because otherwise, I'd be out, out in the garden, out in the, the um, halfway up the hill, because people are reporting a thousand and things like that. So there's groups there. It's been cut at 50, and you see most people are rounding, except for this gent who said 47, which I think shows, I don't know, remarkable degree, <laughs> <laughs> nerdish precision, I think. <laughs> so the point is that you may notice here, though, that the blue points seem to be higher than the. The men are reporting more sexual partners than women. And there's all sorts of reasons why that may be, that maybe these men have had younger women, for example, or their younger female sexual partners. However, this is a general characteristic of sex surveys, that men report having had more partners than women. 1990, it was double, about double. 1990, 2000, about men reporting on, average, on median of uh, 13 against six. Well, no, mean, mean, the mean, not the median. 
the mean, in other words, adding up all the partners and dividing by the number of people, the mean uh, double, and they're a bit closer now, but still in excess. In every sex survey that's done, men report having more sexual partners than women, on average. Now, I want to prove to you mathematically that this is impossible. This is it's just not feasible. If you've got a closed population with an equal number of men and women, then the average in terms of the mean number of partners should match. Okay, let me demonstrate that to you. There's five women and five men, and these lines represent sexual partners, or if you want, you know, they dance partners or anything, you know, bridge partners, whatever. And um, so there's, um, uh, you know, she's a one, she's one, she's a three, none at all, she's had five. No, no, no comment. And, uh, but the point is that there's 10 partnerships altogether. And when, if these are equal number of men and women, the mean will always be the same for men and women. They've had on average two, no matter what the distribution is. The medians will be different. The median meaning what the one halfway along had will be different. The median there is one, median there is two. So that, that's different, but the mean is the same. So something's going wrong. And people have spent ages trying to work out why. What is it? Is it what's called social desirability bias, or women just not reporting? Um, they, they, uh, uh, oh, I'm terrible thing. Are women not so good as adding up? You know, <laughs> you know and yay, thank you. Yes. No, no. Rounding, rounding bias, it's known as rounding bias. When they're, when they're, when they're rounding. And the other strong suggestion is that, um, for the, done by qualitative work, in the, is that when women are thinking about their past relationships, as many they'd rather just not consider as relationships. And that they, they just, that's, I do not consider that as a sexual partner. So I think, which I, I think is a much more reasonable solution. Um, there is some evidence for, um, social desirability bias, small evidence, and, but it's based on what I think is a beautiful randomized trial, a real experiment, unfortunately done on um, American psychology students, of course, who everything's done. And this is using what's called the bogus pipeline experiment. People know what a bogus pipeline is. Bogus pipeline, I'll tell you in a moment. This was um, 200 people randomized to three different questioning modes. So they were each asked about how many sexual partners have you got, have you had? And one of them was guaranteed, one group guaranteed anonymity. One had an exposure threat. And this was that one of their colleagues was going to walk in, pick up the paper, and walk out again. <laughs> and they knew this was going to happen. The bogus pipeline is a fake lie detector. And it, you, people are wired up with little stickers and the, you know, the usual stuff, wiggly pens, all completely spurious. <laughs> but they don't, they're not told it's completely spurious. They think they're wired up to a lie detector. And when this happened for men, this is men. It made no difference what they're wired up to. But for women, the ones who are wired up to the lie detector reported significantly more sexual partners than the ones who were worried about exposure. So there's some evidence that, um, uh, that you know, the, the, the idea of what people will think, the social desirability bias, is, import is important. Okay, so uh, and my final three-star statistic from Natsal, which is uh, absolutely fascinating, um, is one of, the, one of their major findings, is the enormous change, enormous increase in same-sex behavior among young women or women over the last 20 years. For men, so this is same-sex behavior, um, it's stayed fairly constant over the last 20 years, and this apparent rise between here, they think, might be just um, more willingness to report. Remember, this is at the AIDS fear. This is just after the tombstone adverts and that sort of thing. For women, steady increase. Um, and not just, this is just a sort of uh, a kiss or something like that, but these are proper same-sex partnerships going up, um, uh, increasing all the time. So much more sort of fluid 
definition of, of, um, of same-sex uh, sexual behavior among young women. Now, this doesn't mean identification as, as lesbian or bisexual, which actually still is a fairly small proportion. It's, that's part of official statistics as well. People are asked that on major surveys. But so that's not so great. But so, so what it shows is that you must distinguish between behavior and same se and identification, what people say they identi self-identify as. There's a big difference there. Okay. Now numbers can get mangled. This is a, a thing I gave. You know, realize that this area. You know, journalists like it, but they don't tend to get it right. I I did a lecture with Dame Ann Johnson, who runs Natsau, and she, it wasn't something I said. She said one third of young people now have sex before 16, which they do illegally. It's illegal even if your partner is under 16 as well. It's still illegal. So one third of young people. It's stabilized. You know, it's dropped a lot since um, you know uh, past generations, but it's stabilized now. And as I said, teenage pregnancy is halved in the last 12 years. Teenagers now, when they have first have sex, are enormously more competent than their in the previous generations, their mother's generation and their grandmother's generation were. And you measure competence by not being drunk, not having drugs, using proper contraception and uh, not feeling any pressure to do it. So actually, you know, teenagers have got the message in a major way. However, okay, one third of young people, by the time it's got to the Daily Mail, well, forget about the two and a half thousand times a minute, that's what I did, but um, this is it. Finding as part of a project by Cambridge mathematician also found that 30% of total sexual encounters take place before 16. <laughs> no, no, she didn't say, I, didn't, I just certainly didn't say that. So instead of 30% of people having sex, suddenly it's 30% of all sex is under 16. It's just hopeless. And well, it's quite a clever thing. What they got is just the denominator wrong. Because the numerator is the number of people who are under 16 when they have sex. But instead of the, the denominator being all people, the denominator was all sex. I mean, this would be ridiculous. I mean, you'd, you'd never have time for homework. I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> just ridiculous until. Okay, right, let's start getting bad now. Now, you know, two star, they're pretty rough, pr you know, pretty rough statistics. And uh, the classic one of that, oh yes, like internet panels and things, was Kinsey. Kinsey was extraordinary. I mean, it is, you know, really. It's a good film with Liam, Liam Neeson. I think it's rather good. The book, his books are extraordinary. He was a, an amazing man, really bizarre. Anyway, I won't go into his personal sexual details, but he collected 15,000 sex histories in the 1940s. And as a statistician, it's fascinating. He produced these books, best-selling books, and that was his form. He, well, he, didn't, he set the rules. He, I wouldn't say he broke all the rules, he, but he, the, things have changed totally since when he did it. He filled up this form. As I said, he just had a conversation, offered people cigarettes, used all the vernacular terms, made friends with them, took them out for a drink sometimes, filled up these forms in the conversation using this bizarre code which, which was never written down for years. So only he and three other people knew the code of all these sex histories. And, it's a and he asked about everything. And he also had a system of active denial. So he wouldn't ask, um, you know, have you had sex with someone other than your wife? You just ask, when did you last have sex with someone other than your wife? Um, and, or when did you last have sex with another man? And he wouldn't use the word have sex, either. so he would use vernacular terms. So that was active denial was required for everything. Now, maybe that form of questioning, maybe his friendship, maybe his group of people, for example, most of his working class um, uh, participants were from prison, um, led to some rather bizarre statistics. He's obsessed with outlets, orgasms. You know, that's all he was concerned with, was outlets. And uh, so his, two of his statistics were 37% of men had had homosexual outlets, and 70% and of men brought up on farms had had outlets with animals. <laughs> now, this, in 1948, this, was, this caused some consternation. 
<laughs> but did manage to sell him a lot of books and made him, of course, completely notorious about, about this. So his data is not considered very good at all. You know, rough idea. And he certainly revealed the fact that there's a huge, bigger range of sexual behavior than you would have thought from watching Doris Day films. <laughs> so um, one star. Now we're getting pretty bad, pretty ropey. Um, you know, it could be all over the place. E.g. volunteer surveys. You know, like me, well, you know, me asking, just handing out a questionnaire. So, oh, just fill this in. And you'd say, oh, who would do that? Well, lots of people do. Newspapers do it, magazines do it, timeout surveys do it, and you can, you can know when, a st when stuff is, um, you know, statistics may not be, you may not want to take them too seriously, when they say, um, you know, they're absolutely filthy, saucy statistical breakdowns, <laughs> isn't that great? <laughs> saucy statistics. Anyway, so um, this is drivel, um, you know, but they have 10,000 people, nearly as big as NatSAL, and they only cost them a few quid, you know, but... Can you believe it? No, you can't. And they even admit the sample consists of those who chose to fill out our sex survey online. So not as a totally self-selected group, there's no checks on whether they're saying anything reasonable, they can just fill up any old rubbish. These could be teenagers at home just doing, filling up anything they want for a laugh. No checks whatsoever. And yet, you know, people would love to replace things like NASA with internet panels. It'd be so much cheaper. As I said, seven million quid, the last one. So that's being argued about all the time. Can you create a good internet panel that will give reliable answers? This is a really interesting. We see how bad people are you know, just on finding out what you're going to vote in the next election, so let alone this stuff. And Sheer, many of you might remember Sheer Height, who was very prominent in the 1970s feminism and wrote these enormous thick books which were very influential and actually, you know, having, I can't say having read them and skipped through them, they're full of really good stuff about um, uh, women feeling that their sexuality was not being expressed, that they were being coerced, that, um, uh, 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 and so on. All that sort of, and it's excellent stuff. However, um, 4,000 women speak frankly, that's what it says there on that right-hand one, but that was out of 100,000 who had given questionnaires. You distributed 100,000, 4,000 back, and came up with these extraordinary statistics. 84% of women emotionally unsatisfied, 95% reporting forms of harassment, 70% of women married for more than five years were having affairs. And that seemed to be, that, whoa, you know, that caused a lot of um, consternation at the time, huge amount of press coverage, a massive amount of criticism from statisticians at that time, who really laid into it. She got very upset about it and essentially you know, withdrew almost from the, this area. Um, because, and I think with some reason, if you look at the back of the book, for example, at this claim that 70% of women married for five years or more are having sex outside of their marriage, you won't be able to read that. But what I'll say is that what this does say is break that 70% down by different groups. So race, ethnicity, um, and it says white, 70%, black, 71%, Hispanic, 70%, Middle Eastern, 69%, Asian American, 70%, other 70%. All, and all these different breakdowns of groups of people are all within you know, either 69, 70, or 71%. It's too close. You can't believe it. The numbers are too good to be true. You would never get such similar numbers in real data. She made them up. She must have made them up. Um, so it, it, I, I think there's reason to really worry about what she's doing. Okay, so that's, you know, sort of forensic analysis of some stats. Okay, that's gone through my star rating. Just to um, get on some, I love historical stuff. I love looking at what was going on in the past. And some Britain has been very good at collecting some good data. Our civil registrations go back to 1837, not quite as far back as Sweden, but pretty good. And that enabled them very quickly to start um, producing 
what we'd now call infographics. For example, that, that's a bastardy map of England and Wales. <laughs> bastardy map, 1842. 18, I mean, people produce, the Guardian comes out with its nice colored maps now, and are so, they feel they're so cool. Whoa, they were doing that in 18, 1842. And very interesting it was too. I, I, usually, <laughs> I usually make the joke, because I'm in Cambridge, to say top of the bastardy league table is Norfolk. <laughs> but I notice Hereford is up there as well. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, no, no change there. So, the, so we got, we, yeah, so this sort of data is, I think, fascinating. You can look at old data and you can find out, for example, this again is extraordinary. Total fertility rate, going back to 18, before the 1850s. This is the total number of babies that a woman would be expected to have if she gave birth at the rates that people, women at that time, were giving birth. And what we see is very vividly the, what's called the fertility transition. Every country's got to go through it. France went through it in the 18th century. Essentially, fertility transition is when women go from natural fertility, five, six babies, a woman, um, down to two, down to replacement, essentially. And it happened in the UK between 1870 and early, early 20th century. Enormous plummet in the number of babies people had. As the, we, the you know, huge industrialization, moved to the cities, et cetera, et cetera. Enormous drop in, essentially women took control of their fertility. Now, the question is, how did they take control of their fertility? Because um, historians have you know, looked at this, spent a lot of time looking at this, and the use of artificial contraception was very limited. The use of abortion was there, but again, very limited, although there were methods available. Um, but um, so how did women avoid getting pregnant in that way? And that's been a question that's been you know, coming up throughout the historical era. I think it's fascinating. Okay, put that on hold a moment, and let's go to another question. How many boys are born for every 100 girls? Okay, and it turns out that it's 21, as I mentioned before. Throughout the Western world, more boys are born than girls. Nobody really knows why. There's an argument about whether at conception it's different. No, the recent pa big, huge paper came out suggesting that at conception, it's, um, it was equal. And actually, because it's been argued that male f before that um, uh, male fetuses were weaker than female, now it's suggested actually it's the other way around, that actually at conception it's equal and that it's just more babies born who are men. So it's, this is per 100 girls, 105 boys are born. And that's steady pretty well now in the Western world. Of course, it's different in countries where there's selective abortion. And now, but the crucial thing is, let's look at the history of that. This is not random variation. And each of these figures is based on maybe 700, 800,000 births. So these are not, these are absolutely precise. And it's lovely data, you get this off Office of National Statistics, you can find out the number of boys and girls born since 1837. Just, they publish it every year. But nobody ever looks at it. I don't, I've never seen that graph plotted before. And it is an extraordinary graph. Let me put some dates on. Okay. When are more boys born? Yeah. End of wars. More boys are born at the end of wars. And it's true. I mean, it's no, you know, this is not a statistical artifact. It is true. More boys are born at the end of wars. And it's a, a completely reproducible finding. Also, 1973. Well, I can explain 1973 as well. So, why are more boys born at the end of wars? This is a big question. Same in America. Peak sex ratio was 1946. More boys born, and again in the early 70s. So why are more boys born at wars and the early 70s? And I should mention, the early 70s was the sort of nadir of um, sexual safety 
it was a time it was when teenage pregnancy was at its peak, sexually transmitted diseases were at its peak, um, the British you know, Medical Association was still campaigning against giving contraception to, to girls, and um, it was uh, a time of where um, essentially behavior had, had liberated, but actual sort of sense <laughs> hadn't. So, okay, so, same, so more boys are born at the end of wars, fact. Now why is another matter, deeply disputed bit of science, why they are. And I, th this guy, Bill James, who I know, is a very nice old man, retired now, and he, um, he's come up with this thesis that more boys are born when there's a higher coital rate. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're doing it faster. It means there's, <laughs> there's, there's more of it, more of it going on. And he'd say this leads to conceptions that happen earlier in the cycle and that these conceptions are more likely to be boys. Okay, so that's his biological thesis on this. So let's see what that means. Now, this is a fascinating graph. I, I think this is one uh, you know, I think that all school kids should be shown in their lessons. This is the chance of getting pregnant for having sex once, unprotected sex once. And um, estimated, I could give it, you know, someone to ask me after how you arrive at these figures, very difficult to estimate. But this is, so this is um, uh, ovulation here, so the peak fertility or fecundability, as they say, um, uh, is at uh, two days before ovulation. And if you have sex then, then for younger couples, about 50%. And that is an average, and there's big variation between couples. For some, it's 80%, 90%. So some people only have to have sex once, and they'll get pregnant. And others, you know, sadly, if they want to have children, will be down here. So huge variability between people on, on this scale. So these are really just averages. A decline with age, not as big as people think. So you know, women who are 35 to 39 are, are not as, you know, don't, their fertility is not as bad as people sometimes make out if they want to children. But it drops off on each side. Uh, the average is about um, 5%. So if you imagine having sex at random, if you can imagine such a thing, I believe it can happen, um, that's about a 1 in 20 chance you get pregnant for a young woman. So there's a warning for everybody. So the argument, Bill James' argument is that if you're having a lot of sex every day, twice a day, whatever, um, and throughout this, this period, then it's more likely you'll, you'll get pregnant before the time of peak fecundity because you know, you, there's a good chance you'll be pregnant before here. You're more, so it shifts the time of pregnancy to the left of the cycle if you're having a lot of sex. It's biased, it always shifts it to the left. You'd like to, and there is some evidence from animals and, and women to some extent that there's a very small increased chance of having a boy if you conceive earlier in the cycle. Tiny, it's don't, it's, it's not, if you want to have a boy, this is, you might as well eat bananas, that's the other recommended method. You know, don't, don't use this as a sex choice method. It's tiny. You only spot it if you're having hundreds of thousands of kids, which you won't. So, so, but a small shift in chance of having a boy. So his thesis is that if you're having a lot of sex, then there's slightly, this is why you have a slightly more chance of having a boy. And what's the connection between the end of wars and having a lot of sex is demob and, and uh, home on leave. The time of intense sexual unprotected activity is at the end of wars. So that's his thesis, and I think it's quite reasonable. It also explains 1973. If you take away, because that was the time of this, all this sort of sexual activity, unprotected sex among young people, whatever. So that actually explains, I think, adequately these peaks in, in, um, uh, in, in sex ratio. Now, if you've explained the peaks, what about the trough? Now, the time when there were least boys born, most girls were 1898. Now, this is still tiny. You wouldn't have noticed, you wouldn't notice this unless you've got hundreds of thousands of births. 
But 1898 was the nadirs when least boys were born compared with girls. So if the peaks are a measure of intense sexual activity, what's this? This is a measure of decline in sexual activity. And what this supports is what is what historians call either the consonance or the abstinence theory for the fertility transition. Fertility went down in Britain because people didn't have sex. So essentially, the late Victorian period was characterized by, by people not having sex, or you know, not as much. There was a big restriction on the amount of sex. And there's big propaganda about that, all sort of publications saying once a month is quite enough, or you, know, you shouldn't have sex much. You know, there's a continence movement, very strong indeed. And so couples weren't having very much sex. And I think that reflects what, what that, um, you know, that's reflected in this statistic. Okay, and just to finish off, oh, so that, what I'm saying is that sort of explains that. Now, I've got a couple of minutes left because I want to leave time for questions. Just a couple of random things. Um, it, it does make a difference, though. I mean, what well, we do know from other data, of course, is when people have sex, to some extent. So if you look at the months in which people are born in this country, absolutely massive peak in September, late September. All the most popular days for birth are all in the last week of September. And so that's the time of birth. So if you look at time of conception, what's there? It's Christmas. Yay, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. Uh, New Year. I mean, you, 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 when you got fed up with watching the repeats of the two Ronnies, you know, what else, what else is there to do? Massive. I mean, really quite a big effect between, um, you know, the June, July conceptions. Um, you know, good, uh, well, not quite 10% more, but a good change. Now, so does this make a difference when you have, is there another reason why people might be ha aiming to have their, planning to have their babies in September? Well, of course, there is a good reason, because it gives your baby a massive start in life. Your babies are, b are t oldest in the school year. They have a huge benefit in sports, academically, and everything else. And just as an example, I, I'm, a, I'm a professor in Cambridge, this is the chance of getting into Cambridge, the proportion that get into Cambridge, the percentage, depending on the month you're born. So points, if you're born in July, 0.6%, October, 0.8%. That's a third bigger proportion of people getting into Oxford or Cambridge from being born in October rather than July. So maybe that's why people are having sex at Christmas. Okay, so... <laughs> Isn't that extraordinary data? Amazing, amazing data. It really is true. It, it is quite extraordinary. Yeah. Okay, so, oh, I don't, oh well. <laughs> I don't need fear. I just, I just, I couldn't, yeah, that worked you up. I just, <laughs> the, the, the great master, I, I, in the book, I got a whole chapter on masturbation because I just found it fascinating because masturbation was invented in 1712. Did you realize that? <laughs> but, <laughs> well, it wasn't, not if you read Samuel Pepys' diaries. There's 11 references to masturbation in Samuel Pepys' diaries, including once in church. So, um, but, but in 1712 was published Onania. And this is my favorite book cover, The Highness Sin of Self-Pollution and All Its Frightful Consequences Both Sexes Considered. Spiritual and physical advice to those who have already injured themselves by this abominable practice. So, with that warning... <laughs> Thank you very much for coming along to hear me. Thank you. <laughs> and um, yeah, I've got a lot of time for questions if people are interested in any of these things. Yeah. Oh, oh, do you want to wait for a microphone? Yeah, sorry, I should be. Let's wait for a microphone. 
There was one slide which showed that some people who are actively involved in sex don't realize that they're involved in sex, wasn't there? And then there's another slide um, which shows that thing between the, the men and the women. So I'm wondering whether the num that if you're having sexual partners and you don't realize you're having sexual yeah, partners, yeah, yeah, yeah. that actually has, has an indication about the number of times a week you have sex. Yeah, yeah. Well because you, you didn't know you did. Well, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you should know, yeah. No, no, exactly. And you could say a lot of this work, this work grew out of the AIDS fear, in which um, people realized that nobody had an idea what people were doing, what are they getting up to. And essentially, sex became defined as something that could pass a disease. That's why oral sex became sex, because it is potentially possible to pass disease through oral sex. So that's why, you know, sexual, it was defined as a health due to the public health ideas. But, um, the, the, but as you said, the, the crucial thing, which I haven't talked about, is concurrent partners. Because that's the, the business, the, what a lot of the interest is in. How many people have got multiple partners over a short period, and even more concurrent partners? Because that's what, where you get the, the networks going out for sexually transmitted diseases. Because the, the original motivation for all of this was predict what's going to happen to the AIDS ep epidemic. That's why they got the original funding, where people were, you know, just didn't know in the late 18, 1980s. Huge variation in the predictions, these dire predictions, some of them, about what was going to happen. So that was the original motivation. It's moved a lot away from that, the motivation. It's very interesting to see how the surveys have changed. They were originally concerned with all that you know, um, activity that could pass diseases. Now it's much more to do with sexual health in the terms of um, competence at first sex, and, and now moving much more into coercion, and uh, especially about young women uh, negotiating their progress through their sexual development. And that is now the major thing, because kids now know about pregnancy and they know about disease. I mean, it doesn't mean they're going to be immune from you know, um, getting things wrong, perhaps, but they, they're much more knowledgeable. So now it's to do with um, uh, withstanding pressures because of pornography and all those sort of things. That's what's, you know, what good schools education is, and that's what the interest now is in, in doing in surveys. <laughs> well, I, I, if we got one, we got one mic. Okay, I get, can I? I'll, we'll do these. Yeah. Hi. Um, very interesting. Uh, going back to your fertility graph. Yeah. Um, so you had a peak around forty-seven, uh, which I assume is the end of the Second World War. Yeah. But what's the peak in sixty-four? Oh, that's sixty-four. It's quite interesting because I would expect in the early seventies, because that's when essentially the, the uh, there was a big liberalisation of behaviour, but contraception essentially hadn't really caught up, or it was there, but people weren't using it to the same extent. Interesting, the, why do people think the peak in 64, I'm just saying, trying to get a baby, boom, so that's 20, you know, that's, no, there's a gap, it's about 17, yeah, it's not quite old enough to be. And I suppose the other question about that graph is you yeah. said that abstinence was probably a main reason for the reduction. Yeah. Um, but in most countries where you have a reducing uh, thing, it's, it's to do with wealth. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, no, the, the abstinence was the method, but the motivation was that having large numbers of children was no longer, was no longer of economic benefit to families. And so it was actually much more beneficial to restrict the number of, of children that you had. So, you know, people acted in that way. Essentially, it was the women, you know, to a, to a small degree, becoming empowered, you know, about their, you know, their um, procreation. So they were, they were, and they were exercising that. Um, by abstinence, this, this suggests, more than any other way. 
Sorry, the 64 is due to? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know whether that's just, yeah, just um, aging, just young hippies. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, in your presentation, you used a number of examples that you drew from the newspapers and so on. Yeah. I'd be really interested in your perspective on the treatment of numbers in society oh. and our understanding as a population of numbers. I mean, the interesting European, in the current European yeah, debate, yeah, numbers yeah, yeah, are getting yeah. thrown yeah. around. Yeah. Um, and that must cross over with the, your work on risk. So yeah. I'd be interested in your yeah. perspective on no, that. No, thanks for that. No, no, no absolutely. I, I think I'm, numbers in the news is, I think it's very important. They're used all the time. We can see it in the Brexit debate. They're used as rhetorical devices. And most of the time, when a number appears in the news, someone is trying to make it look either very big and frighten you in some way, or trying to make it look very small and reassure you. So almost always, when a number appears, someone's using it as an argument to make you feel in a particular way, to make your emotions react in a particular way, and change your opinion or your behavior. So and is, I find this you know, upsetting, in a way, that numbers are used in this way, and, and frankly, abused in this way. And so often, that they just use an argument. And actually, people don't care about the number. They don't know where it came from. They don't know, even know what it means, particularly. They're just using it as a device. And that gets done all the time by so many actors now in, in society. Um, and it's very upsetting, I think. And so, you know, I think that um, and that's something I feel strongly about, that um, myself and many other people are trying to improve the way that numbers are used, to give them their due respect. But it's not saying that numbers should determine everything, because you can only... You know, with numbers, you can only measure things that are measurable. There's masses of things that aren't measurable. They can only contribute to debate. And, uh, and it, I, I suppose th this use of them just as arguments um, both inflates them, but also it, um, it, it, it detracts from them because it, it, somebody says, oh, I don't believe that, and that's it. The number's gone. You know, it's just, it's just either accepted as a, a sort of God-given truth or rejected casually out of hand. And in fact, Numbers always represent something that has been constructed to some extent. Somebody's chosen what to measure and how to measure it. But it can still be really useful. So, yeah, it's not great. I think things are maybe getting a bit better. Brexit has been terrible. But um, the, I think generally there's a bit more critique now of numbers in the news. There's things like more or less on the radio, the UK Stats Authority that will pick up um, politicians. They're not quite so free to play fast and loose as they were. So maybe things are getting a bit better. Maybe. I have them. I have a mic here. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, on that point, I've often felt that if a law was passed that you could never say a percentage without saying of what, then oh, yes, we yes. would be. Yeah. We yeah. would be. No. But that wasn't my question. Oh no, no. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, yeah. Um, another comment is uh, the the um, peak of bur um, boy births in 1973. There yeah. was, if you remember, well, maybe you don't remember, but I remember well, um, an oil crisis and power, power cuts, cuts and three-day weeks. Yes, 72. In 72. 72 with a Heath power cut. Yeah. That's yes. it. <laughs> ah, what a brilliant explanation. That's lovely. And 64. Well, and, but, yeah, it's, yeah. 64 was when GPs started handing out the pill. Yes, yes. And yes. It, it, it's, you know, anybody of my age noticed the demographic change immediately, yeah, immediately. because women found there were much more fun things to do than have babies when yeah, they were 22, yeah. as yeah. I had done. So it plummeted so, up. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that 64 could be just going up and handing out the pool brought it down again. Yeah. So it could be part of an arrested in, in mm. increase that was, yeah. gonna, that was happening. Yes, yes. Coming back to the question prior, how far is the statistical jargon of expected and significant responsible for the press 
uh, making nonsense of the, um, the numbers? Well, I mean, the word significant is to be avoided at all costs. Um, you've never used that because it's so easily misinterpreted. So, no, I think in the whole in stats, those technical terms are, are avoided. Um, but the issue, is, as the last question said, is often just getting the percentage, percentage of what and getting it wrong. And getting confused between a, a percentage increase and a change in percentage points. Um, as I said, the, the usual one that I use for that is the bacon sandwich. Um, stuff that came out about processed meat being so dangerous, it raised your, your risk of bowel cancer by 18%, your risk of bowel cancer. But the lifetime risk of bowel cancer is about six percentage points. So that 18% relative increase over six percentage points take, takes it to 77 percentage points. So that means that 100 people have to eat a bacon sandwich every day of their lives for one extra bowel cancer. And so that to do that translation is quite, and it's beyond every journalist to do that translation. So, <laughs> not a single one. Many of them know they should do it, but they don't feel confident enough to do it. So uh, that's part of the training that we're trying to put into journalism to get them so they feel they can do it themselves. But they know they should do it now. I think many know they should do it. Oh, have we got a, a mic down here? Okay. Uh, what was the most surprising thing that I discovered? Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you repeat it. You repeat it. Well, yeah, I just said I've I've learned a lot of really interesting things from, from this talk. But I wondered, as a statistician and coming from from this, from your perspective, what was the most surprising thing that you discovered? Oh, oh God, that's difficult. Um, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> the one I love best was um, uh, <laughs> about the infection, the infectiousness of gonorrhea. Okay, I, 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 yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, why not? So you, if you go onto, onto any medical website, if you go on NHS Choices and you go onto Wikipedia, it'll tell you that um, the chance of getting gonorrhea from a single, on average, again, it varies very much from person to person, uh, from a single um, uh, um, uh, encounter, unprotected encounter, I think it was 18% or something like that. There's a man getting it from a woman. And, and that figure's just quoted. And I thought, well, where, does this come, where does that come from? How do they know? How do they know? And you go back, and it says, it, it's one of these detective stories. You, you go back to one source, and it refers you back to another source. Go to another, and you go back and back and back, until you get to the visit of an air, a US aircraft carrier in the Vietnam War to a Philippines port for rest and recreation. A four-day weekend. 1,800 sailors went ashore, and when they came back, a large number had got gonorrhea. And they... Uh, and, um, they measured how many had got gonorrhea, find out what they had done during that time, who they had sex with and how many times. Then in the town, which was full up with bars and prostitutes, they didn't know the status of the exact women the men had had sex with, but they knew the average number of people infected with gonorrhea because the prostitutes were being inspected. So from that figure of you know, how often people had had, had sex and uh, et cetera, et cetera, that's where that, and they did this mathematical modeling and came out with that 18% figure. And that's now used all the time. That's the thing. If you go on to NHS Choices, you'll be told 18% chance can be. And it's from one visit of an aircraft carrier <laughs> <laughs> in the Vietnam War. And I thought, I thought that was surprising. I thought, you know, I didn't know how else they would know, but I was surprised it was based on that. Yeah. Um, given that you, when you wired up the women to... Uh, wasn't me. It wasn't you. So <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. When the women were wired yeah. up to, to a, a false lie detector test, test, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, 
they then said they had far more sexual partners, well, or, or they had more sexual partners than, yeah. um, than they'd said otherwise. Do, are, are there concerns about the veracity of other answers that they give in, um, in, in the yeah. sort of the yeah. sexual questions? No, I think, I mean, all the time there's a suspicion about underreporting of, um, uh, well, underreporting under of behavior that might be considered sort of transgressive slightly in terms of having had abortions or multiple sexual part, you know, concurrent partners and things like that. And, um, and, and, you know, always the feeling is that likely for women they'll be underreported. For men, there may be some boastfulness and or casualness about answering. I think that's what I meant about the adding up, is just that men are like, might be much more casual about, oh, it's just that. And um, whereas women might be more meticulous in trying to work through their thinking about their history. So um, the... Um, which actually means the men would be worse at adding up than the women. So I, I, I think so. They desperately try to do cross correlations to work out um, about other questions. For example, uh, age at first sex, you know, was a sort of trans was a is a tricky question, and you know, there's lots of information that this change. People report different answers depending on when you ask them in their lives. So when they're older, they might be more willing to acknowledge when they first had sex rather than at another time when they're. You know, when they, they feel that's still not, as, not an appropriate thing to say, or vice versa. So this is a, age at first sex is a quite a malleable <laughs> quantity. So what they did was, um, it's not the same women, but in, in 1990, they ask 30-year-olds, uh, 30, you know, 30 when did you first have sex? And then in 2000, they ask 40-year-olds, when did you first have sex? And in 2010, they ask 50-year-olds, when did you first have sex? Now, it's not the same people, but they should be the same answer on average, given that, you know, statistically, they all are, so they should give the same answer. And from that, they got a feeling that in the 1990, people were possibly under-reporting under this behavior. But between 2000 and 2010, people feel it's stable, and actually people are willing to acknowledge these things. Given they're, they're sure about anonymity, they will admit it. So it's that sort of quite clever test that they do to try to get a check on the answers. I have a microphone. Right. Um, you've you've uh, mentioned surveys quite a lot in, in your talk. Yeah. And surveys, good surveys, depend on good samples of the underlying population, yeah, yeah. do they not? Yeah, exactly. Um, and earlier yeah. on this week, we had Danny Dawling. Um, oh, really? Oh, well, yes. He did a great review of this book. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he said all school kids should read it. Oh. it. <laughs> you didn't mention that. But, no, but no. what he was, one particular thing yeah, he was yeah. railing against was the fact that it's unlikely that the census, there will be a proper census after the, is it the next one or the last oh, one? Yeah, and yeah. saying that in fact all this is going to do is mean that in fact all these surveys are going to mean you find more about the people you know about already. Yeah, yeah, And, yeah, and yeah. it really will be a, yeah. seriously compromise a lot of statistics. Yeah, no, it's always the problem that they, you know, you don't get everybody, and it, that wouldn't matter if it was a random group of people that you did get, but it's not. You know, it's what's called informative missing. The fact that someone isn't reporting might be telling you something about them. Um, and that is a problem. And they try to weight these by demographics and things like that. They know that certain groups of people, um, Asian men, for example, are, are underrepresented or un not so willing to answer. So there's, um, you know, there's various ways they, they try to weight it, but you never know. The crucial thing is if the, the people who have got behavior um, I mean, in a way, it's likely that there's two biases, that people um, with a very limited sexual life or sexual history might say, oh, I don't, I'm not going to bother with this, and people with an exuberant sexual activity, particularly if it's rather transgressive, say, I'm not going to answer this. 
So there's two, you know, now whether they how much they compensate, of course, is another is a matter, but you know, they'd like to get biases both ways. Both these groups are like to be underrepresented. And um, because they hope that isn't the case, and they try to do these checks to make sure it is, they do checks, for example, of how many, um, the proportion of people admitting having abortions compared with the actual proportion of abortions. People having abortions, see how whether it's representative. It's not bad, not bad. Um, but there is, no, it, it is a real problem. And that's why they don't want to go over to internet panels, which are even worse, even more self-selection for internet panels. Because people, you have to volunteer to be on a YouGov panel, and then you have to volunteer to do this particular survey. So it's a real problem, and, and all polls, all surveys are suffering because people aren't so willing to do surveys anymore. Any survey, even if it's very, you know, just about what you, what shopping you do, people are not so willing to do them anymore. So this is a real problem, and um, not limited to this area. And I think I'd better stop. Where's, the, where's my man who's looking after? Is someone looking after me? Otherwise, I'll just have to stop it myself. Okay, <laughs> he's gone. He's gone. I've been abandoned. Right, okay. Can we just say a couple more quick questions then, if we could? If there's um, a microphone there. Yeah, I can do two more very quick. Yeah. Um, one of the things that always stuns me about surveys, and indeed in, in your survey, is that people lie, um, notwithstanding, you know, the threats that you might have of being exposed, when it's completely anonymous and they still oh. lie. Um, for example, my father, when we were younger and they would do those television surveys, yeah, yeah. he would fill out programs that he thought we should be watching. Oh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Rather the than the ones we ones, were yeah. watching. Yeah, yeah. And I used to say to him, why are you doing that? He said, because I don't want them knowing that we've actually watched yeah, the program. Even if it's anonymous, yeah, yeah. And I still, I mean, he was quite a rational kind of yeah, man, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. said, well, who's them? And yeah, 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 <laughs> are yeah. they going to come round to your house and, and tell you off? Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. he knew they weren't. Yeah. And I, I couldn't understand why he wanted to affect the survey yeah. result the way yeah. he did. What, what do you think is going well, on there? I mean, yeah, with no, women... I, oh, I, I'm not a psychologist. I wouldn't yeah. know. But I, it does sound a plausible way. that people, people have a social desirability bias. They want, to, mm. uh, they want to reveal themselves in a way, even anonymously, in a way that they would like people to think of them. And I think it's very natural. We all do it. So how do they... Do they factor that in? Well, in no, what they try that's to do question. is that's why they feel that a face-to-face -face interviewer is very important. Um, I've talked to some of the people who've done the interviews, and they say it's the best server they've worked on. And they, they, you know, they don't, they don't do a, a Kinsey and take them out for a drink, but they do, you know, explain this is the, the reliability of your answers is extremely important. You ju just want to say, that, you know, they do have a conversation, there's a personal relationship with the person who's not doing the interview. In fact, is just offering the interview to them, and so you hope that that will get around it. But in the end, if people lie, well, what can you do? You know, there's no way you can actually tell that they're lying. Of course, the other thing is, go, of course, go over to, like, go, like instead of that, have a goggle box type thing, put a camera on top of your television. So you just put a camera in everyone's bedroom and then... <laughs> and I'm sure that wouldn't affect anything, just like... <laughs> just like I'm sure the people on Gogglebox are a random selection <laughs> of, uh, of the television population. Yeah. OK, I've got to stop now, I think. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, so thank you very much. I'm going to say goodbye to you. And, um, yeah, thank you. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks. Got a flag. And I think I'm, I hope I'm signing books over at the, um, over in the bookshop. George Collins walked out one May morning When May
should he see but a fair pretty maid?